Hello, and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, January 24th. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Wynn Stanley, John Elmer, Tamara Nassar, and Ali Abunima. It's day 110 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We have a full show for you today, so buckle up. But first, some of the news. Israeli forces have been raiding and besieging areas in the southern Gaza Strip while deliberately starving hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in the north. Dr. Ashraf Al-Kedra, spokesperson for the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza, said on Tuesday that the health situation in the southern city of Khan Yunus, quote, is catastrophic and indescribable. On Monday, Israeli occupation forces raided Al-Khair Hospital in Khan Yunus, ordering women and children to evacuate towards Rafah at the border with Egypt, according to the United Nations. On Monday and Tuesday, Israeli forces and drones attacked both Al-Amal and Nasser hospitals, also in Khan Yunus. Al-Amal Hospital is the headquarters of the Palestine Red Crescent Society. Here is the PCRS spokesperson, Nabal Farsakh, speaking to the BBC on Tuesday. Um, uh, just give me a sense of what you're hearing from your colleagues on the ground. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Since uh, yesterday, there is uh, escalation in the attacks near Al-Amal Hospital and the Palestine Red Crescent headquarters in Khan Yunus. The situation remains extremely dangerous. Today, early morning, there was direct artillery shelling for the Palestine Red Crescent headquarters on the fourth floor. Um, Israeli drones didn't stop uh, firing uh, at the people in Al-Amal Hospital. Panic and fear among thousands of displaced people who are taking shelter inside our facilities. Our ambulances are facing a great and significant challenges, reaching to the wounded people to transport them to the uh, hospitals. Now our EMS teams are transporting the critically wounded people in Khan Yunis to uh, another governorate, to Deir al-Balah, central Gaza, because basically Al-Amal Hospital, along with Al-Nasser Hospital, the areas are extremely dangerous and they are under intense uh, bombing as yes. well as uh, continuous uh, gunfire. That was Nibal Farsakh, spokesperson for the Palestine Red Crescent Society, speaking yesterday to the BBC. Meanwhile, at Nasser Hospital, medical teams reported to the United Nations on Tuesday that no one, quote, can enter or exit the facility due to ongoing bombardments in the vicinity. Health staff are reported to be digging graves on hospital grounds due to the large numbers of fatalities anticipated and the need to manage burials. Dr. Mohamed Harara of Nasser Hospital explained on Tuesday that Israeli tanks have been surrounding the hospital grounds. More than 120 patients arrived to the emergency room on Tuesday alone. I am Dr. Mohamed Harara, one of the doctors who served at Shifa Hospital before being evacuated to the south and now working at Nasser Hospital. Israel tanks are everywhere and we are completely surrounded. The situation here are more than terrible. We have uh, received uh, 128 uh, injuries and uh, 56 uh, martyrs since uh, this morning. 
19% of the doctors left the hospital uh, fearing for their lives. And therefore, the remaining of uh, the doctor have to deal uh, with more than 15 cases at a time. Most of the cases are amputation. The situation here are miserable and the smell of this everywhere. I feel like the Shifa hospital scenario are repeating itself. We are on another level of danger. That was Dr. Mohammed Harara of Nasser Hospital on Tuesday. More than 1.3 million people are now concentrated in Rafah, according to three major Palestinian human rights groups, writes my colleague Maureen Murphy. Rafah had a population of 250,000 before Israel's current offensive in Gaza. The Palestinian rights group said that the latest developments indicate that Israel intends to cause a second Nakba, the first being the forced expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, from their homeland around the time of Israel's establishment on their land in 1948, Maureen reports. Israel's current operations in Khan Yunus indicate that Rafah would be targeted next, putting the lives of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians at risk, the Palestinian groups added. Quote, an assault on Rafah would raise the alarm that Israel intends to force residents out of Gaza as it refuses to allow people to return to the northern areas, Maureen writes. For more on the situation on the ground in Gaza, read Maureen Murphy's latest report, Israel Besieges Hospitals as it Widens Offensive in Khan Yunus, on electronicintifada.net. Last week, the United Nations reported that Israel has denied access to more than 75% of planned humanitarian aid and supply missions into Gaza. Approximately 95% of missions that involve the distribution of fuel to water facilities and medicine to health centers in the northern half of Gaza, quote, have been denied access by Israeli authorities, the UN said. Meanwhile, COGAT, Israel's bureaucratic arm of the military occupation, continues to insist that there is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza and that it has imposed no limits on aid. Quote, to the best of my understanding, and according to all the analyses we have conducted, there is no hunger in Gaza, and for sure the population is not being starved, a Kogat official named as Colonel A recently told the Tel Aviv newspaper Haaretz. The colonel, who boasted that they have not, quote, read an in-depth UN report about hunger, cited racist notions of Arabs for why they are running out of food, quote, don't forget that this is an Arab Gazan population whose DNA is to hoard, certainly when it comes to food, the Kogat official said. Kogat is led by Ghassan Alian, who described Palestinians on October 10th as, quote, human beasts. The agency has been Israel's primary source at the International Court of Justice in its attempts to assert its humanitarianism towards Palestinians. For more on the humanitarian aid access situation in Gaza, read my report, Israel's, Israel insists there is no hunger, humanitarian crisis in Gaza, on electronicintifada.net. Israel continues to kill Gaza's educators and physicians. It was reported by his colleagues that Dr. Hassam Hamada, a senior pathologist and a professor, and the chair of the pathology department at Al-Shifa Hospital was killed earlier this week after he was shot by an Israeli sniper and bled to death. Dr. Osaid Alser tweeted on Tuesday that Gaza used to have five pathologists, 
Two of them have been now killed and two of them have retired. So now there is only one working pathologist for the 2.3 million people in Gaza. Dr. Fadel Abuhain, a psychology professor in Gaza City, was also reported killed by Israeli sniper fire this week. European Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor reports that at least 94 university professors have been killed by Israel since October 7th, and that every single university across Gaza has been destroyed. Turning to a few of our published stories this week, Sarah Al-Gurbawi writes from, from Gaza, quote, Thousands of Gazans are losing loved ones every day. Their plans to live and create memories together are gone forever. Hundreds of thousands of Gazans have lost their homes and lifetimes worth of memories, all buried under rubble, along with the thousands of those murdered by Israel's unhinged assault and which emergency services have been unable to reach. Since October 7th, Sarah writes, plans have not only been canceled or postponed, planning has stopped entirely. Everyone's focus is almost entirely on surviving amid the death, destruction, and broken dreams of Gaza. Read Sarah Algarbawi's entire piece, Life in Gaza is on Hold, as well as dozens of pieces we're publishing every week from other contributors in Gaza on electronicintifada.net. My colleague Tamara Nassar has written an extensive overview of the latest Israeli attacks in the occupied West Bank. She writes, quote, Israeli occupation forces shot at a Palestinian child Monday evening and made sure he was dead before they allowed paramedics to reach him. Israeli troops carried out the deadly raid in the town of Araba near the northern occupied West Bank city of Jenin. Two Israeli military vehicles arrived at the entrance of the town carrying some 15 soldiers. They exited the vehicles and started, quote, patrolling the town and firing live ammunition at Palestinians, according to a field investigation by Defense for Children International Palestine. Read more about the situation in Tamara Nassar's latest report, Israel Ramps Up Attacks in the West Bank, on electronicintifada.net. And our colleague David Cronin writes, quote, telling the full truth about the Holocaust is a duty for citizens of Europe, the continent where that monstrous crime occurred. Telling the full truth must include denouncing how the Holocaust is being abused to provide cover for Israel as it commits a genocide in Gaza and various other acts of aggression. This week, the European Union will abuse the Holocaust, David Cronin writes. The EU, he adds, quote, is marking International Holocaust Remembrance Day by hosting a conference along with several pro-Israel lobby groups. The event illustrates the EU's duplicity and depravity. This week's conference will feature Danny Dayan, a resident of the Malay Shomron settlement in the West Bank. He is a former chair of the Yesha Council, an umbrella group for settlements. A profile published by the Tel Aviv Daily Haaretz in September noted that, quote, he is still totally committed to the settlement worldview, apartheid, occupation, expulsion, and exclusion of Palestinians, Jewish supremacy. For more on the European Union's complicity with Israel's genocide in Gaza while it marks Holocaust Remembrance Day, read David Cronin's latest post, Invoking the Holocaust to Support Gaza Genocide is an Abuse of History, on electronicintifada.net. And finally, we wanted to send our condolences to our friend and contributor, Ahmed Masood, whose brother, Khalid, was killed this past week. Just a few weeks ago on this live stream, Ahmed talked about Khalid, who inspected the rubble of his family's house in northern Gaza. 
According to Ahmed, quote, Khalid's house was bombed first, then he got shot by an Israeli sniper. A few days ago, he went missing, a drone bombed, he lost his leg and bled for three days. My brother and friend is gone, he said. Ahmed, uh, we're sending you and your beautiful family our deepest solidarity and condolences in this time of unimaginable, gr unimaginable grief and pain. We're with you, we're with you, and we are so sorry. شد ابو احمد شد يلا هلك شد That was Ahmed Masood, our contributor and good friend, uh, in a video that he took with his brother Khaled in Gaza. And you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada live stream. We have a full show. For you today, we'll get into a new report by Asa Wynn Stanley about how Israeli military commanders ordered their troops to shoot Israeli captives on October 7th. And of course, we'll have a John Elmer breakdown uh, of some of the latest operations by Palestinian resistance groups, plus a special report by you, Ali. Uh, but first, we're joined by our good friend, Helena Coben. Helena is a veteran international affairs analyst and a former longtime columnist for the Christian Science Monitor and Al Hayat. And currently, she's the president of Just World Educational and publisher of its newsletter, Globalities. Helena also hosts PALCAST, a podcast with Yusuf Al-Jamal, who's a longtime contributor to the Electronic Intifada. Helena, welcome back to the live stream. It's good to have you with us. Oh, it's so good to be with you. I admire what you guys have done with your um, regular webinars so deeply. I know that it must be extremely taxing for you, you know, emotionally and in every other way, but you are really providing a service for the English-speaking world all around the world that is unequaled. So thank you, and I'm deeply honored to be here. Thank you thank so much. You. Thank you so much for that, Helena, and we're so glad to have you. And your words touch us deeply, and I just want to say again, I, I can't say it enough, how much the support of you and all the readers and viewers makes it possible for us. I mean, the emotional support and the sense of community makes it possible for us to do this, to be here for our friends and colleagues in Gaza and across Palestine. Yeah. You know, um, our dear friend, Rifat Al-Arir, uh, our late friend, um, used to always say that he, he um, studied English literature and literature in English. And I think it's a very important distinction to make because literature or communication in English is not just for English speaking, you know, native English speakers. It is right now the worldwide language, you know, with the with the PALCAST, we've had guests on from Malaysia, from from um, Japan, from all around the world. And, you know, I think that what you're doing in English language is really important, not just here in the United States but, you know, for the whole of the English-speaking community. So, yeah. Mm. Um, you mentioned Rifat, uh, and, uh, you know, you 
worked with him for years and years. Uh, you published several uh, books where he was the author or editor, Gaza Writes Back, um, that's uh, in, in the background there, and also Gaza Unsilenced. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Rafat and his work, and 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 then we'll get more into uh, the, the news. But I wanted to give you some, some time to talk about Rafat. So Rafat, um, as people here probably know, but the worldwide, like, listenership doesn't know, was a really sweet, gentle, concerned individual who was a stunningly good teacher. You know, if you could, if you look at some of the, the videos that are available of his English language, English literature classes at uh, Islamic University of Gaza, I, you know, you can see him encouraging his students and just drawing them out, which is Actually, the, the true meaning of the word educate is that you draw out the, the smarts and knowledge and understanding of your students. So I first met Rifat in, I want to say 2011. Um, my husband and I had been able after the, uh, in that brief period after the fall of Mubarak, um, when it was slightly easier, a little bit easier to get into Gaza through Rafa, and we went in and um, I did a seminar at um, the Center for Political and Development Studies, CPDS, in, in Gaza. And I think that's when I met Rifat. And later, I wanted to, I, I very much, you know, because my publishing company, Just World Books, and I urge everybody, obviously, to go to our website, justworldbooks.org, uh, no, .com, actually. Um, I really wanted to start publishing writers from Gaza because, you know, there, there have been a number of fine writers in English from the West Bank, Suad Amri and, uh, you know, a host of really fine writers, but there hadn't been any from Gaza. So I talked to Rifat and we talked about, this was all by email, of course, um, whether it should be like nonfiction or fiction, basically. And he really rooted for fiction. So that is why we have, you know, Gaza, oops, Gaza writes back, short stories from young writers in Gaza, Palestine. And this again, you know, he was just encouraging his students. So there are 23 stories in the book. The 23 stories represent the 23 days of the assault that Israel sustained against Gaza in 2008, 2009. Um, three of the stories were Rifat's own, and they are very fine stories. The other 20 were by younger writers. Um, most of them, I think maybe all of them, his students. One of them was our good friend, Yusuf Al-Jamal. But um, so he just really wanted to present the work and, and to, to showcase the work of his students, which is one of the things I loved about Rifat. He wrote a very fine introduction the volume and um, a lovely poem right at the beginning of it which um, is interesting because it's actually it's shaped like a bomb hmm. um, I don't know how many people know that but anyway we are about to bring out a new edition of it and one of the features of the book is that at the end there are these like one or two page like contributor information pages so it our intention was to, to um, showcase for an English language audience that people in Gaza are people, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's a very simple concept, right? But back then when we brought the book out in 2014, it was still fairly radical to think that 
people in Gaza might be people. So one of the things we're going to do with the new edition, the memorial edition, is to have as many of these contributors as we are able to contact, which of course is not all, um, update. We're working with them to update, you know, what they've done since the book came out, what that meant in their life. Mm -hmm. And then I hope we're going to have an, an all new forward from that really wonderful social activist and thought leader, Mr. Ali Abunema. Um, <laughs> so thanks for agreeing to do that. Ali will be in touch later. So yeah. that, you know, that, that then, so that book came out in 2014 and um, with the American Friends Service Committee, we toured Rifat and Yusuf and Rowan Yeri all around the United States. People came who had never knowingly met a person from Gaza before. I mean, there are, you know, people from Gaza all over the United States, but, you know, they don't walk around with a, like a, a thing saying Gaza. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and they're normal people. So, like, <laughs> anyway, 2014 was when the Israelis undertook yet another assault against Gaza. So the following year we um, brought out this, why do I keep, misidentifying where the camera is. That's where the camera is. Okay, Gaza Unsilenced, co-edited by Rifat and Leila El-Haddad. So anyway, that's, you know, just a little bit. Of course, um, I have so many memories of Rifat and little interactions with him um, toward the end of his life. And I really valued your really important interactions with him on your, your on your podcast so that's Rifat and his memory his legacy which we are all dedicated obviously to carrying on yeah very very much so and, and thank you for keeping his work and his memory alive and I have his books here um, and, <laughs> and and uh we will continue that legacy, and I, I'm very honored to take part in this this new edition of Gaza Rights Back. Yeah. Well, Helena, um, you published a newsletter on globalities this past week about Gaza, um, kind of in the in the same vein of what what you were just talking about, centered around how people outside Gaza are admitting to feeling hopeless to affect any change there or rather feeling pity uh, for the 2.3 million people. And you say that, quote, hopelessness, hopelessness and despair cannot be an option, especially for those of us who are outside Gaza. And I'm increasingly of the view that pity is a patronizing, othering, and somewhat self-paralyzing kind of response to the situation Gaza's people are facing under Israel's truly outrageous genocidal assault. Uh, let's have you talk about what you mean here and how you tie it into historic situations of um, other massive relentless sieges and assaults. You, you bring up Leningrad, for example, and, and what we can learn from that, why that's relevant. Yeah, you know, I had the, uh, the experience of growing up in the United Kingdom in the era of decolonization there. And I think that has really helped me to understand a lot of what's been going on um, in this country around especially Gaza, but earlier, you know, the war in Vietnam and so on. Uh, so in England, when I was growing up, there was this like just almost blanket demonization of everybody who was fighting for national liberation, whether it was in Malaya 
or in Kenya or anywhere else in the British Empire. I mean, I grew up with the idea that the Mau Mau, who was a Kenyan national liberation, main Kenyan national liberation movement, they were, you know, akin to, to devils. You know, they, they had all these terrible rituals that they went through and they would kill white people and whatever. And of course, you know, when the British Empire finally like decided that they couldn't actually hang on to Kenya, who did they negotiate with? <laughs> you know, it was it was essentially the Mau Mau and, and the same in Malaya. So, you know, here we've seen it so often that, you know, people in in the global south who who are you know, the enemies of the United States are demonized, dehumanized. You know, we, we are we in the white world are taught to fear them and hate them. And um, so, so I, I feel, Helena, sorry, I, mean, I feel it's not working the same way anymore. I feel it's not working. I mean, no group has been more demonized by than Hamas. And we're not just talking about since October 7th, we're talking about for 30 years, no group has been more demonized in the West than Hamas. And I find that people aren't buying it the same way they used to. I, I, I wonder what you think. I, I totally agree. And I think there are a lot of good reasons for that. I would say that back in the day, you may remember, and I certainly remember that the PLO was equally demonized, you know, until Abu Mezin came forward with the idea that, you know, if you just, surrender essentially than than the Israeli and US um, empire builders will will give you a good deal and we know where that led Abu Mezin um, but you know back in the day the PLO was definitely demonized to the same extent um, so you're right Ali um, this time it isn't working and it isn't working I think for a number of reasons one is that the white empire, you know, people of West European heritage only constitute about 11 or 12 percent of global, global humankind, which coincidentally is the same proportion that white people occupied in the in the population of South Africa back in the days of apartheid. So um, I think over recent years, and this is something I've been looking at quite a lot, the ability of the white empire to keep control of the whole of geopolitics has eroded for many, many different reasons. And so there are a lot of other voices out there that, especially in English, um, maybe also in Chinese, definitely in Arabic, um, it, within all these different spheres of, of um, discourse that are not you know, totally controlled by the BBC or not totally controlled, but by by VOA or, you know, the white narrators. So, I mean, I think obviously um, Al Jazeera has played a huge role in the Anglosphere, um, but a lot of other media have too, including Electronic Intifada, voices that are, you know, smart, engaged, very well informed, um, very articulate. <laughs> what was it? They, you know, that comment that Joe Biden or somebody made about Obama once, you know, that he's remarkably articulate, you know, for a person of color. <laughs> but it does, it does actually, you know, it makes a difference to be able to communicate effectively in English with a, with, with citizens of the empire, if you like. Another thing is that 
this country here um, in the United States has a lot more um, people of Arab and Muslim heritage than it did 20 or 50 years ago. And, you know, before it was, it was relatively rare to find, you know, an Arab American who occupied a professorship at a major university or who was, you know, working in major media. Now there are a lot of, a lot of Arab Americans in those positions and, and that's great. So I think it's a combination of things. It's a kind of a diminution of the United States um, global power to control the narrative and it's the um, eruption or, or the emergence within the US and, and global English language discourse of people who are who, who are not of you know who are not of the empire. Helena, <laughs> you mentioned just on this theme of the empire, and you you mentioned this briefly the the hold of geopolitics. When you look at, I mean, you've been looking, and we've talked about this before: the global shifts, the rise of China, the fact that China brokered the historic uh, reconciliation between Iran and. Saudi Arabia, Russia gaining strength, the, the defeat of NATO and the war in Ukraine. Those are sort of long-term trends that we've seen picking up steam in recent uh, years, over the past two years. I'm wondering how you look at that now, and specifically in the context of this genocide in Gaza and the regional developments around it. How do you see that geopolitical picture changing or consolidating? I know that's a big question, but take it any way you want to. Yeah, thanks for asking, Ali. I've just finished writing like a 6,000 word essay on this topic. Um, and I've been thinking about it very deeply. You're absolutely right to, to pinpoint the impact of um, the Saudi-Iranian reconciliation that was unveiled by the Chinese um, China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, back on March 10th of last year. And I think it, it had a huge impact in setting the stage for what we see now. Um, because for many years prior, the white empire had very systematically played divide and rule between Sunni Muslims and Shiite Muslims ac right across West Asia. And that had devastating effects. For example, you know, um, the Hamas military, when they actually, um, early in the days of Hamas, when it was still developing sort of guerrilla slash military tactics, 1994, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin um, expelled, I think, 400 Palestinian community leaders from, from the West Bank and Gaza, the Israeli-occupied territories, a large proportion of those were Hamas people. Um, they, he tried to expel them to Lebanon. Lebanon wouldn't admit them. So they ended up in a no-man's land in South Lebanon, where the only people, the main people to, to help them were Hezbollah, which was already developing extremely effective military guerrilla tactics against the Israeli troops that were occupying a um, huge chunk of South Lebanon. So from the very beginning, or rather from 1994, Hezbollah and, and Hamas exchanged ideas. Actually, I would say that 
in the early years, Hamas took a lot of ex ideas from Hezbollah as to how to organize an underground slash guerrilla military um, set of set of operations, and and they were very close. So when the the uh, Arab Spring, the so-called Arab Spring, the much belated whatever Arab Spring, broke out in 2011, very speedily the opposition movement in Syria became supported by Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and you know majority overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim powers who actually subverted the opposition movement and turned it into a kind of a Sunni Muslim fundamentalist movement battling against the um, the sort of Shiite adjacent nature of the Assad family. Now, it, it, I've, I've studied Syria a lot. Syria has, I mean, the Syrian government has a lot of support from the Muslim community, but if, from the Sunni Muslim community. But um, the Assad family themselves come from this minority sect, which is Shiite adjacent. So the, the, the white empire, and of course, let's not forget that the CIA was also in there in Syria in those years, funneling weapons, you know, to the opposition in an attempt to, to hogtie the, uh, the Assad government. And the whole thing was extremely sectarian. And that sectarianism, even to some extent, infected the, the Palestinian rights movement. And so it definitely it did, yeah. Yeah, so it continued for many years. You know, that uh, Shiites were perceived and, and described in, in Sunni Muslim um, countries as, as be, you know, being akin to the devil, all this demonization that goes on. But it, so, it even it even preceded that, Helena, because I think it also that was ratcheted up following the 2006 war in Lebanon after Hezbollah defeated Israel. Right, and was right. Being that feted, stunning defeat. Yeah. Yes. And was being feted all over the Arab world as heroes, resistance heroes, Arab national resistance heroes against Israel. So there was this concerted campaign in Saudi owned media pushed also by Israel and its lobby, people like uh, Martin Indyk and what's the other one, Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Oh, Martin Kramer, I mean, all of them. The, well, well, yeah, but uh, they, and they started pushing this narrative really hard that Iran is the enemy of the Arabs, Iran is the enemy of the Sunni Muslims, and the so-called moderate Arabs, which meant client regimes of the United States, the Saudis, the Gulf states, Jordan, etc., that their real interests lay with making an alliance with Israel against Iran, and that was it. Not the ba was the basis of the U.S. divide and rule strategy that is now pretty much in tatters. Yeah, you're you're quite right to date it to back to prior to 2011. I mean, I remember in in 2006 when when Hezbollah was so stunningly successful in in. You know, completely humiliating the IDF in Lebanon within 33 days. Um, they had like shown them off. Um, I sat in the uh, the sitting room of a Palestinian Armenian friend of mine in uh, Jerusalem, and he was just glued to Hezbollah television, Al Manar. <laughs> you know, that's all he wanted to watch was Al Manar every afternoon at 4 p.m. 
and and that was the kind of solidarity, the anti-Zionist solidarity that this divide and rule um, sought to undermine. And they were very successful. Long story short, over like recent years, I want to say maybe the past three years or so, the governments of Oman and Iraq both started saying, we've got to end this rift between Riyadh and Tehran. We've got to like try to rationalize and ensure that our region doesn't get consumed by this, this Shiite-Sunni divide. So they started mediating, mediating, mediating. And, you know, it's not easy to mediate, you know, a, a very deeply held set of uh, antagonisms. The Chinese then came in, I want to say probably toward the end of 2022, and they nailed the deal. So, you know, the the, the uh, big photo op that happened on March 10th of 2023 was when you had high level negotiators from both those countries coming together. And, you know, the handshake, I called it the handshake that, that uh, shook the world. It's, it, that's not even a thing, whatever. Um, and it, it wasn't just a one minute, you know, photo opportunity. It had real consequences. The then, you know, the Saudi foreign minister went to Syria and visited with, with President Assad. Syria was readmitted to the Arab League. Interestingly, the only Arab state that voted against that was Qatar. Um, but, you know, Qatar does its own thing, whatever. It's sometimes useful and sometimes uh, somewhat less than useful. But my point is that that reconciliation between Hamas and Hezbollah really was an important part of the backdrop for both what happened on October 7th, the, the, the breakout operation of October 7th, and what has happened since. So, you know, definitely set, set the stage for that. Well, Helena, you know, I mean, I, I, this, I feel like we're just getting warmed up, but unfortunately we only have a couple more minutes. So the one thing I'm going to say is that we have to have you back soon to discuss some of these. But I, I'd love, love to get your parting thoughts on, well, two things. One is what, you know, we've talked about the very big picture here, and those are things that are very important to keep an eye on. I'd like to get your thoughts of what you see happening sort of in the in the immediate future, specifically in terms of regional resistance. In other words, what's happening in the Red Sea, what's happening in Iraq with the attacks on American bases, uh, of course, what's happening in the border in Lebanon. I mean, that's a, a long, a lot to talk about in a couple of minutes, but also how this plays out in the United States or any any sense of morality, ethics, decency, common sense, reasonableness, humanity. I don't know, I could go on listing, would suggest that Joe Biden or whoever is handling him should pick up the phone to Israel and say, stop this now, stop this yesterday. Is that going to happen? <sighs> Oof, yeah. Ali, you asked the really easy questions here, right? <laughs> so just quickly, I know you you want me to move off, but there is there are six sub-theaters that essentially ring the Arabian Peninsula 
from Gaza to Lebanon to Syria to Iraq to the Houthis to the Red Sea itself. I, was that six? I hope. But in any of these sub theaters, could you could actually see the spark that sets off a region-wide conflagration? You know how how um, unthinking it is of of the the all those people in West Asia to have their countries so close to the US Fifth Fleet. I mean, really, you know, why can't they just move elsewhere and let the Fifth Fleet take over? So, you know, it, it really could happen. And I'm scared of this at any moment, because until now, you've had very good signaling, in a sense, um, across the Lebanon border. You've had a lot of exchanges of this and that. And Hezbollah has done some really interesting things, I have to say, against the Israeli Air Force um, radars in northern Israel. But, but that's never escalated. It could. So the whole thing could take off what this will mean. I mean, in terms of uh, President Biden doing anything rational, I do not know. What I do know is that in 56, when I was but a young thing. Actually, I was four years old. You know, Anthony Eden, who was extremely sick and you could say incapacitated by sickness, his rational powers had been completely degraded, launched a, a, a horrible attack against Egypt with the aim of overthrowing um, President Nasser, along with the Israelis and the French. And on that occasion, President Eisenhower stepped in and said, this is crazy. This is, you know, this is immoral. This is bad for the region. It's bad for the world. It's bad for humanity. And he threatened to pull the plug on the pound sterling. And immediately Anthony Eden like saw the light and actually he resigned and the British and French and Israelis all withdrew from occupied Egypt. Is there a power in the world today that is capable of stepping in and using economic leverage against Joe Biden's depraved aggressiveness in against Gaza and against the Houthis? Possibly. Possibly the, the global majority can do that through economic leverage, but it's not easy. Um, and they thus far, they have not done it. But you know, if we have that region-wide conflagration that I talked about earlier, then basically the whole global system is going to have to get involved. Yeah. And, you know, this thing about friends don't let friends drive drunk. You know, friends shouldn't let friends spark a, a global war, especially when Israel and the United States both have nuclear weapons mm. there in the region. It's it's a terrifying prospect. But anyway, I know you want me to move on, and I'll be happy to work with you more, Ali, both on our um, Gaza Rights Back project. I know what my problem is trying to see the, the camera. Is <laughs> it's that, mirrored. It's not a mirror here. <laughs> oh, heck, now I've figured it out just when I'm that sure. The other thing I want to say is, please, everybody who's watching this, do tune in to the palcast oh there it is at that side okay that is our new podcast that yusuf al jamal from gaza now sitting in istanbul and i and our friend tony groves in in dublin 
we've just finished our 20th episode. We're doing two episodes per week. And we, we're trying to build, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of globe circling network of people in the Anglosphere from all the different countries of the world who support Gaza. That's Great. wonderful. And, and Yusuf, of course, has been a guest many times and we hope to have him back. He's a wonderful writer and a great friend. And um, thank you for all you're doing, Helena. And we don't want you to move on at all. We have a very <laughs> packed show today, though, and we want to have you back as soon as possible. I feel like we were really just getting started. Yeah, we need to do this. Yeah, more lots more to talk about. And thank you guys for what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Helena. And you are listening to and watching the Electronic Intifada live stream. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Ali Abunima, and we wanted to bring on our colleague Asa Wynn-Stanley. Um, Asa, in the past week, you published uh, a phenomenal report uh, based on information that uh, was only published in Hebrew, I think, still uh, to this day about um, more on the Hannibal Directive ordered by Israeli commanders to uh, have their troops fire on Israeli civilians on October 7th. Um, and you've prepared, uh, you know, a, a presentation here about uh, that report and these findings. And, and so let's get into it. Okay, thank you very much, Nora. Do you remember this video from the aftermath of the 7th of October assault? Hundreds of destroyed cars were rounded up by the Israeli military and later piled up in a car lot in Netivot, an Israeli settlement near Gaza. Would it shock you to learn that much of this destruction was caused not by Palestinians, but by Israel? If you're one of our regular viewers or listeners, this won't come as a surprise. But now, a major new investigative piece by two Israeli journalists shows that official Israeli estimates have privately concluded that at least 70 of these vehicles were blown up by Israel. That is to say by helicopter gunships, drones or tanks. Many of these vehicles driven by Palestinian fighters on their way back to Gaza contained Israelis that they had taken captive. This new piece that you can see here was published in Seven Days, which is the weekend supplement of the mainstream Israeli newspaper Yadiot Ahronot. And this piece confirms what we've been saying all along, which is that Israel reactivated the Hannibal Directive on the 7th of October. Journalists Ronan Bergman and Yorav Zitun wrote that it is not clear at this stage how many of the captives were killed due to the operation of this order. That is uh, an order to the Air Force that they should prevent return to Gaza at all costs. And a quote from the article, at least in some of the cases, everyone in the vehicle was killed. The journalist explained. Now that, of course, would have included many Israeli captives. Now, the paper's online version, Ynet, has not translated the piece into English. Um, so we asked our longtime professional Hebrew translator and Israel expert, Dina Shunra, to translate it for us. 
So all quotes of the article that I'm reading now are taken from that translation, and you can read the, it in its entirety at the end of this uh, report that I've written uh, um, at the electronicintifada.net. So we'll put a link to it in the description for this episode. Now, Bergman and Zitun's investigation found that at midday on the 7th of October, Israel's Supreme Military Headquarters ordered all units to prevent the capture of Israeli citizens, quote, at any cost, unquote, including by firing on them. Quote, at midday of October 7th, the IDF instructed all its fighting units to perform the Hannibal Directive in practice, although it did so without stating that name explicitly, end of quote. As the Israeli piece explains, and as we've reported in detail recently, the Hannibal Directive was established in 1986 after the capture of two Israeli soldiers in then-occupied southern Lebanon by fighters from the Lebanese resistance group Hezbollah. The secretive Hannibal Doctrine is named after an ancient Carthaginian general who poisoned himself instead of being captured alive by the Roman Empire. Now, Bergman and Zaytun say that the original wording of the Hannibal Directive ordered Israeli forces to, quote, halt the capturing force at any price, and that, quote, in the course of a capture, the main task becomes rescuing our soldiers from the captors, even at the price of hitting or injuring our soldiers, end of quote. Now, um, I don't know about you, but I think that the concept of rescuing Israelis by shooting at them is an interesting one, to say the least. In 2016, the Israeli military claimed that the Hannibal Doctrine had been revoked or at least clarified, depending on uh, which reports you believe. But as we've been saying for the past four months, all indications were, in reality, that Israel had revived the Hannibal Directive and has been using it to kill Israelis since the Palestinian military offensive that began on the 7th of October. Bergman and Zaytun's new article is the first confirmation by Israeli media, no less, that there was a specific order from the top of Israel's military hierarchy to reactivate this suicidal military doctrine on the 7th of October. Bergman and Zetun's article says that at midday on the 7th of October, the Israeli military, quote, decided to return to a version of the Hannibal Directive. They write that, quote, the instruction was to stop at any cost, any attempt by Hamas terrorists, I'm quoting from them, to return to Gaza using language very similar to that of the original Hannibal Directive despite repeated promises by the defence apparatus that the directed had been cancelled, end of quote. Now, none of this means that the attack that began on the 7th of October was a false flag, or even that Palestinians didn't kill any civilians at all. But what it does mean is that, in the words of another Israeli article, which we reported on last month, quote, casualties fell as a result of friendly fire on October 7th, but the Israeli, but, but the IDF believes that beyond the operational investigations of the events, it would not be morally sound to investigate these incidents due to the immense and complex quantity of them that took place. 
an immense and complex quantity of friendly fire, but neither was, yeah, it, that's what it says there. It says that there was an immense and complex quantity of friendly fire. It's, uh, it's an interesting idea. But neither was the 7th of October a massacre of Israeli civilians by Palestinian terrorists, the way it's been portrayed by the mainstream media. Rather, it was a carefully calculated military offensive planned for possibly as long as two years in advance. It was aimed overwhelmingly at military targets. Hamas insists that it did not aim to kill civilians, but that some faults may have occurred. Rather, its targets were military bases and outposts, as well as the militarized Israeli settlements along the frontier with Gaza, which by their very nature blurred the distinction between military and civilian targets and act as human shields for the Israeli military. Indeed, one of the Gaza frontier settlements, Magen, is literally the Hebrew word for shield. Hamas says that it aimed to kill or capture Israeli soldiers. To quote, our narrative, this document you can see on the screen here, which was recently released by Hamas. Quote, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood on October 7 targeted Israeli military sites and sought to arrest the enemy soldiers to put pressure on the Israeli authorities to release the thousands of Palestinians held in Israeli jails through a prisoner exchange deal. Therefore, the operation focused on destroying the Israeli army's Gaza division, the Israeli military sites stationed near the Israeli settlements around Gaza. End of quote. Hamas's military assault was well planned and very precisely executed. And the Bergman Zitun article provides a large amount of new evidence confirming this. Hundreds of Israeli soldiers were killed and about 240 Israelis were captured, including dozens of soldiers. Civilians were also taken prisoner, but Hamas offered to release them right away and actually did release them as soon as it was physically possible to do so during the week-long pause in fighting in November. The 7th of October was an unprecedented military success for the Palestinian resistance. To quote the words of a very senior Israeli military officer in the Bergman and Zetoun article, the Gaza division was overpowered. The journalist sources watched the day unfold from the Israeli military's supreme military uh, command position, which is an underground bunker deep below Tel Aviv, known as the pit. The journalists recount that, quote, there was an almost total shock and such words quote, had not been heard since the Yom Kippur War of October 1973. In fact, the pit was almost totally in the dark. They had no clue about the scale of what was happening on the ground. According to Bergman and Zetun, quote, they turned to television and to social media feeds, to Telegram, primarily to Hamas channels. End of quote. The reason for this intelligence failure was quite simple. Hamas had skillfully targeted the communications infrastructure. Another quote. A, plen a preliminary investigation held in the last few days about the communication capacity of the Gaza division exposed the fact that some 40% of the communication sites, such as towers with relay antennas, that the telecommunications department had deployed in recent years near the Gaza Strip border 
were destroyed by Hamas on the morning of the invasion. Soon after the first videos of the Israeli captives emerged at midday, Israel's top military headquarters issued the order to all units to carry out the Hannibal Directive, Israel's suicidal military doctrine. The the article also confirms a lot of the Electronic Intifada's previous reporting since the 7th of October about that day. In November, we reported on Israeli air footage, as well as interviews with attack helicopter pilots, showing that they had been ordered to shoot at everything. That's a quote from an article, shoot at everything, moving between Israel's frontier settlements and Gaza. That Israeli article stated that, quote, in the first four hours, helicopters and fighter craft attacked about 300 targets, most in Israeli territory. You can see the footage of it there. Now, Bergman and Zatun's new article that confirms this and actually expands on it, saying that by the end of the day, Drone Squadron 161 alone, quote, performed no fewer than 110 attacks on some 1,000 targets, most of which were inside Israel, end of quote. Uh, As we reported in English for the first time, Israeli news media last month showed footage of tank operators that you can see here firing at Israeli homes inside a kibbutz during the battles with the Palestinian resistance on the 7th of October. This, in turn, confirmed our reports back in October about the testimony of Yasmin Parat, and we were the first to report on that in English. She was one of only two survivors of an Israeli attack on a home in Kibbutz Be'eri. That building contained around a dozen uh, captives held by Palestinian fighters, and Porat told Israeli media that the Palestinians had treated them humanely. But she said that the Israeli army ended a standoff with the fighters by deliberately tank shelling the house, even though the captives were still present and she and one other woman were the only survivors of that. Porat later elaborated that the casualties of the Israeli attack included this girl, 12-year-old Israeli captive, Liel Hatzroni. Now, Hatzroni's photo, um, you may have seen it, was later used in propaganda by Israeli officials who wrongly claimed she had been burnt alive by Hamas. Because she's Jewish, was what Naftali Bennett, the former Israeli prime minister, said. You can see him lying here in this tweet. Now, although it's being aggressively ignored by mainstream media in the West, who are even trying to punish independent journalists like us who report accurately on this, Israel's suicidal military doctrine is making waves inside Israeli society. We are killing our people, was how one family member of the captives pleaded. Families of the captives want to see their loved ones come home safely and are pushing for the Israeli government for that to happen by agreeing to a prisoner exchange deal with Hamas that would release all Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Even Asa Kasher, the author of the Israeli army's so-called code of ethics, agrees with the families and is now calling for an immediate investigation of how the Hannibal Directive was used. But the reality seems to be that the Israeli government doesn't want the captives to come home alive, since the price of that 
would be a prisoner exchange deal to release the Palestinians. And that's why it has unleashed the Hannibal Directive. You can read more about all this in my article. And also remember that we've published the full text of the English translation of that Bergman Zetun article appended to my own piece. So you can read that in full there. Um, now, I, in the next segment, I think Ali is going to tell us more about those mainstream journalists that I mentioned are trying to prevent this kind of reporting. Before we go to Ali, thanks so much for that, Asa. That's phenomenal. Um, and uh, of course, as people know, you can go to electronicintifada.net and read uh, the report that Asa just laid out. It has It's chock full of sources and citations. Um, and of course, the English translation uh, by our colleague, Dina Shunra. Um, but I, I also wanted to get John's two cents on um, on this report and the new, hi John, and on uh, the, this these new revelations, um, because John, you've also been following this very closely. Um, so yeah, what, what's, uh, yeah, what's it's your a reaction? remarkable story. I think yeah. the, the Asa covered it well, the fact that it's um, senior sources um, that participated in the day um, and all like the quotes from those articles, I think uh, the article is something that everyone should read. And it's amazing that it's only in Hebrew and that the reporter Ronan Bergman has written in the New York Times in English since that story has been published with no uh, sign of that story. So I think that's an interesting uh, background to the media. But I think that story really, um, the thing that I, I think was underscored in that story was that um, one of the officers says that all procedures were thrown in the garbage, um, that the Hannibal Directive was all units, all sector. So it's not just a certain incidents. Um, they're talking about the entire Gaza envelope. Yeah. Um, and we know that the command and control of the IDF was completely collapsed. They had no connection. They didn't have any understanding in the, in the Gaza envelope what was happening. They didn't know that they were fighting in 80 different places, that there was more than 40 breaches in the fence. Um, and that I think the point about the prisoner exchange is that the division, the Gaza division commander and the Gaza division's north and south brigade commanders were all captured uh, on that day and are um, part of the prisoner exchange that uh, Israel is trying to postpone. Right. Thanks for that, John. Um, we will, uh, of course, have a full report from... Uh, from you in I, a few minutes, but yeah. I just want to say great job, Asa. Very, yeah. very important reporting. Absolutely. It's essential reporting. Um, thank you again, Asa. Uh, Ali, you had something that was uh, related to what Asa just laid out. Yeah. Um, I wanted to update you on the, uh, the, the Washington Post hit piece that... Right. Uh, we we were uh, talking about a few uh, weeks ago it was uh, it's been published yes it <laughs> came out on uh, on january 21st on in the sunday edition and uh, i think you can see the uh, sensational headline we're going to put that right. up um, growing october 7 truther groups say hamas massacre was a false flag Basically, it accuses the Electronic Intifada and other independent publications of engaging in outlandish conspiracy theories about October 7th. And it smears us using guilt by association with Holocaust deniers. 
It's written by Elizabeth Dwoskin of the Washington Post. And as you'll recall, she contacted us a couple of weeks ago with some very biased and accusatory statements and questions asking for comment. I wrote back to her and published my response on Twitter, and it went viral. You can uh, see my tweet uh, right there on uh, on the screen. We're going to put that up now. And um, we also did a segment about that on our live stream. Uh, I think that was on uh, January 10th, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, where we showed that when uh, this Washington Post reporter Elizabeth Droskin attended Columbia University, she expressed views typical of a far-right Zionist. She denied that Palestinians existed as a nation. She claimed they were just a few, quote, desert Bedouins, and therefore she denied that they were expelled en masse in 1948 from hundreds of towns, cities, and villages. She's basically a Nakba denier. Uh, we, We can put a link to that segment in the description below after the live stream yeah um is the article as bad as we all expected it's actually much worse it is really (laughs) quite full of falsehood smears and innuendo from beginning to end so let's take a look at some of the manipulative language she uses um and let me just find my place in my notes um She's claiming that uh, October yeah. 7th yeah, denial me, is spreading. Yeah. 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 So here we go. So she says October 7th denial is spreading. A small but growing group denies the basic facts of the attack, um, pushing a spectrum of falsehoods and misleading narratives that minimize the violence or dispute its origins. origins. Some argue the ambush was staged by the Israeli military to justify an invasion of Gaza. Others say that some 240 hostages Hamas took into Gaza were actually kidnapped by Israel. Some contend the United States is behind the plot. That's what she says. I have literally never heard anyone claim that Israel kidnapped the 240 captives or that the United States was behind it. I mean, she could have found a couple of truly fringe people Mm -hmm. saying such things online, but she misleadingly suggests such views are widely held and and basically pins the blame on us. Of course, we've never said any such things. And note that in general, her accusations are very vague. I mean, what does it mean to, quote, minimize the violence or dispute its origins? Those are very fuzzy charges that you can't really defend against. And she doesn't say it outright, but by October 7 denial, she seems to mean anyone who questions Israel's official narrative in any way. So, for example, all the accurate reporting we've done at the Electronic Intifada about how Israel has killed many of its own people on October 7th, for her, that presumably counts as October 7 denial, even though all our sources are unimpeachable and almost all come from Israeli media and Israeli official sources and statements and videos. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that she tries to associate us with Holocaust deniers. Yeah, here's where it gets even more manipulative and disgusting, and I would say even defamatory. Yeah. Roskin claims, and I'm quoting, 
the phenomenon of October 7 denial is worrisome to Jewish leaders and researchers who see ties to Holocaust denial, the attempt to undermine the genocide that killed 6 million Jews during World War II, a belief that has surged online. They also see parallels to many pernicious internet-driven conspiracy theories with anti-Semitic tentacles, including the QAnon conspiracy theory, which alleges globalists, a reference some say to Jews, used the pandemic to control the world, and so on. And she goes into 9-11 conspiracy theories uh, and how some people argue that those were carried out by Mossad. So she just throws in the Holocaust as well as a bunch of other unrelated things. And this is how she is smearing us by association. Using the Holocaust in this way is very emotive and manipulative. And it's just about the worst accusation you can make. She doesn't accuse us directly of Holocaust denial because that would be a lie too far. But she's saying that anyone who questions the official October 7 narrative is just as bad as a Holocaust denier or as bad as people who support these various other fringe ideas that uh, she refers to. And I think it really shows how weak her arguments are that she has to resort to this kind of sleaze, basically. Yeah, very cherry-picked sleaze. Um, what what does this Washington Post article by Elizabeth Dwoskin say specifically about our coverage here at the Electronic Intifada? Yeah, she claims falsely that the Electronic Intifada has said that, quote, the Hamas attack was a false flag for Israel to occupy Gaza and kill Palestinians. That's a quote from her, not from us. And that we say that Hamas didn't kill any civilians on October 7th. We have never made these claims in our reporting. What we have reported accurately are two kinds of stories. Stories debunking false atrocity propaganda, like, for example, the claims of dozens of beheaded Jewish babies that even Israeli media now acknowledge are completely fake. And stories, and the other kind of stories are stories about how Israel killed many of its own citizens on October 7th, something that can also not be disputed. We just heard Asa talking about that. But she accuses us, and I quote, of cherry-picking evidence, some factual, some highly distorted, to push misleading narratives. Again, it's very vague. What exactly is she accusing us of? Yeah, it's uh, every accusation is a confession. Um, Does she directly challenge any of the factual evidence uh, we have presented in our reporting that is backed up, as you said, by citations and sources? No, she really isn't able to do that. But listen to how she tries to spin away the evidence. She writes, quote, Israeli citizens have accused the country's military of accidentally killing Israeli civilians while battling Hamas on October 7th. The army has said it will investigate. But articles on electronic intifada and gray zone exaggerated these claims to suggest that most Israeli deaths were caused by friendly fire, not Hamas. Uh, That's the end quote there. But it is Elizabeth Dwoskin and the Washington Post who are distorting and cherry picking evidence to suit their own agenda and indeed to minimize what had happened on October 7th. So, for example, we do say in our reporting that uh, Israel accidentally, probably indiscriminately killed some of its own people on October 7th. 
But we also say that some of this was deliberate using the Hannibal Doctrine and all of our reporting there, again, is very solidly um, sourced, but she doesn't acknowledge any of that. And here you can see she asserts that an electronic intifada article from November, and I'm quoting from her, makes the claim that most Israeli casualties on October 7 were perpetrated by the Israeli army, basing the story in part on a YouTube clip of a man who describes himself as a former Israeli general, end quote. That's from, from her Washington Post article. Now, she doesn't provide a link to the uh, electronic father article she's talking about, and that's significant because anyone who would actually click on the link and read the article, which is by our very own wonderful Asa Wynn Stanley, would immediately see that Dwoskin is misquoting it. As you can see uh, right here, what Asa actually writes is that a retired Israeli army major has admitted Israel probably killed some of the 1,200 Israelis the government claims Hamas murdered on the 7th of October. The confession discovered by the electronic intifada is one of the highest level confirmations to date that Israel killed many if not most of the civilians that died during the Palestinian offensive, end quote. That's actually what Asa's article says. So first of all, Asa cites a former Israeli army major, not a general, as Dwoskin claims. So there's just that basic level of accuracy that's not there. But more importantly, Asa clearly does not claim categorically that Israel killed most of its own people on October 7th. He says many, if not most, which means that it is possible that it is most. But as Asa's article itself states very clearly, we are unlikely to know the full story without a credible, independent investigation that Israel absolutely refuses to allow. And uh, Elizabeth Droskin completely distorts this article because she focuses only on this one statement right at the beginning, which she gets wrong, and ignores the huge amounts of evidence in the rest of the article about Israel killing potentially very large numbers of its own people. And it could very conceivably be most of them. But we have never stated that categorically. We've said it's a possibility that requires further investigation. and. As regular readers and viewers of the Electronic Intifada will know, even more evidence, all from Israeli sources, has come out since Asa wrote that article in November. For example, this uh, major piece by Asa that we just uh, heard Asa talk about in the previous segment on this live stream, again, exclusively citing sources from the mainstream Israeli media about top Israeli commanders ordering forces to open fire on October 7th using the so-called Hannibal Doctrine, which allows Israeli forces to kill their own people in order to stop them being taken captive. Now, instead of pointing any of this out, Dwoskin just throws in a sentence from my email to her to make it seem as, she, as if she's being fair and balanced, but she never really addresses any of the facts or sources in our article. No. Um, who or what is behind this hit piece besides Dwoskin's own ideological uh, bent? 
I think the answer to that is hidden in plain sight within Dwoskin's article. She claims, quote, that untrue and misleading narratives have been seeded on social media, end quote, and she cites supposed research by something called the Network Contagion Research Institute, which she identifies only as a non-profit tracking disinformation, a non-profit tracking disinformation. That sounds very uh, objective and benign in a way. But let's go back to that section where she tries to smear us and other independent journalists by falsely and outrageously associating us with Holocaust deniers. After that smear, she has this quote, there's a built-in audience that wants to deny that Jews are the victims of atrocity and furthers the notion that Jews are secretly behind everything, said Joel Finkelstein, chief science officer at NCRI. Again, that's the Network Contagion Research Institute that she describes as this very benign uh, nonprofit. Right. And when you dig into it, what what is it really? Well, it's an organization that is designed to look academic and neutral, but even a cursory glance reveals that it is basically an Israel lobby front group. One of its co-founders, the man she quoted in the article, is Joel Finkelstein. And on the NCRI website, he's described only by various academic titles. But when you dig a little deeper, you find that he used to work at the Anti-Defamation League, Mm. the ADL, one of the biggest and most aggressive Israel lobby organizations in the United States. The other co-founder, a man called Adam Sohn, is a former spokesperson for Jeb Bush when he was the Republican governor of Florida. And then he went on to be vice president of the right-wing Charles Koch Foundation. And uh, then another one of this uh, NCRI's top executives is a man called Richard Benson, Benson was formerly the chief executive of the Community Security Trust, which is an organization in the United Kingdom. And many of our viewers in the UK will already know that the Community Security Trust is another pro-Israel lobby group that receives a lot of funding from the British government and which for years has engaged in false smear campaigns against Palestinians and their supporters. For example... Way back in 2011, the Community Security Trust played a key role in the decision of the British government to try to deport Sheikh Ra'ed Salah, a Palestinian leader with Israeli citizenship who was visiting the UK uh, for a speaking tour. Now, they did this by providing the British government with fabricated quotes from a poem which they claimed proved that Salah was anti-Semitic. A British court eventually overruled the deportation and ruled that it had been made based on false information. Our very own Asa Wynn Stanley reported on all this at the time. Uh, And as we've also reported, the Community Security Trust has connections to Israel's intelligence service, Mossad, and it has used its uh, very considerable access to the British government to smear Jews critical of Israel. And then among many of the so-called strategic advisors of NCRI, you have such people as Paul Goldenberg, who is also a member of the Department of Homeland Security Advisory Council. So 
when I looked through its reports, basically what NCRI does is produce Israel lobby propaganda masquerading as research to paint Israel as a victim and Palestinians and their supporters as anti-Semitic villains. For example, back in July, they published a report claiming that Israel is targeted on Twitter more than any other country. You can see here the Jerusalem Post article uh, promoting their report. Of course, the absurd implication is that all of these mentions of Israel is because of anti-Semitism and not because Israel commits so many human rights abuses with funding and backing from the United States, the country which, after all, has the highest concentration of Twitter users. But in the Jerusalem Post, you can also see Adam Sohn, the founder of NC, the co-founder, along with Joel Finkelstein of NCRI, claiming that anti-Zionism is basically the same thing uh, as anti-Semitism. And then in her Washington Post article, you, we, if we go back to that, we have Dworskin citing Finkelstein to make this extraordinary claim. She writes, while it's reasonable to question the intentions and wartime tactics of Israel's government, Finkelstein said, efforts to say Israel was responsible for October 7 are part of a broader strategy by anti-Semitic extremists to undermine Jewish suffering. So there you have it. Questioning <laughs> the official Israeli government narrative about October 7, doing journalism about October 7 means you're a Jew hater. This is who Elizabeth Droskin and the Washington Post are presenting as so-called experts without ever disclosing the NCRI's Israel lobby ties and pro-Israel agenda. And they, they're the ones accusing us of misinformation and disinformation. I mean, I don't know it for a fact, but I would not be surprised if this hit piece was pitched to Droskin by an Israel lobby group and probably by NCRI itself. It's an example of how U.S. media works as a mouthpiece for power, and in this case, an accomplice in genocidal propaganda. Right. Uh, why would the Washington Post be interested in doing this, in, especially in such a shoddy way? I think the short answer to that is that articles like this in establishment or semi-official outlets like the Washington Post will be used by lobby groups to try to pressure social media companies to censor us or limit our reach. There's a whole censorship industrial complex, so to speak, in which governments, think tanks funded by governments and arms manufacturers and big tech companies aim to control what we can all say and see online under the banner of fighting supposed disinformation. They label anything that challenges official narratives to be disinformation. And when you start to break through and challenge their hold on the narrative, as we have clearly been doing, they come for you. It's the same model that has already been used to try to suppress outlets that have challenged U.S. government policies with respect to Syria and Ukraine, among others. And now it's being turned against us. I mean, one thing you have to remember is that we still have the First Amendment in the United States, which provides the strongest legal protection from government suppression of free speech in perhaps any country in the world. Now, of course, that doesn't mean the government and the ruling class don't want to censor us. They absolutely do. They just have to do it in this indirect way by smearing us as disinformation, 
on pressuring and colluding with social media and big tech companies to do the censorship on their behalf. That's the way it works. And I think it signals very clearly that our journalism now represents a threat to Israel and its lobby, and they're going to try their best to smear and, and silence us. I mean, Ali, do you expect any fallout from this specific article or the forces behind it? Well, already since the article came out, we received another communication, a series of questions from a company that purports to do independent fact-checking and give credibility ratings to news organizations. And they said they're doing a profile of the electronic intifada. They actually call it a nutrition label, and it will supposedly tell people if we can be trusted or not. Now, the questions they sent us were more like accusations and also included a number of outright false statements about us or gross distortions of our work, similar to the ones in the Washington Post. I did actually speak to a representative of theirs on the phone and pushed back very hard on their false statements and distortions, but we'll keep that story for another day. Let me be clear, though. All these people can say what they like. It's not going to stop us doing what we do. In fact, it's only going to encourage us. Right. And um, what what can we do about it? What can our, our readers and, and audience do about it? Well, we will just keep doing what we do, sticking to the truth and reporting it. Uh, but it's very important for all our readers and viewers to support us and other independent media too, help us fight suppression by sharing our articles from the website, you know, liking and sharing our videos on YouTube and subscribing to the channel, all the things we say all the time that help us expand our reach. But it's also very important to sign up for our email list, that you, which you can do at electronicintifada.net, because that's the one thing they haven't figured out how to suppress yet. They may try to limit our reach on social media, and they probably already do. But as long as we can send people our newsletter, our work still gets out there. In some people's minds, email is very old-fashioned, but it's actually one of the most powerful tools we have to fight this kind of censorship. Yeah. And uh, of course, as you said, we're an independent outlet, which means we're supported by our readers. Um, and so people can also support that work, as many are doing already, uh, by making a donation to the Electronic Intifada, as well as to other independent media organizations, as you mentioned, that are doing this type of work. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we're able to do this kind of groundbreaking journalism that the Washington Post not only refuses to do, but is trying to suppress uh, by smearing us. I think that's the important lesson here, is that we have to be free of these people who are trying to shape the narrative and to tell us what we can see and say. And the only way we can do that is by doing this as grassroots uh, media, independent media, supported by the people who read it and share it and view it, and uh, being part of a community that does that. So, you know, we, we have a lot of respect for the other independent outlets that are also doing this work. There aren't that many of us, uh, but you can see that even just a few small outlets like ours is enough of a threat that they start to send the big guns after you. Right. Thank you so much, Ali, for that. Uh, I hope that's the last we hear of uh, Dwaskin coming after us, um, but we shall see. Uh, let's bring on John again. John, come back. Hi, guys. Um, there you are. 
Um, so uh, as we transition to the videos and resistance part of uh, the show, I I know that it, just a couple of days ago, one of the um, biggest uh, casualty mass casualty events uh, for the Israeli army happened um, in Al Mawasi. But um, the New York Times kind of framed what the soldiers were doing uh, when they were um, uh, uh, attacked. Um, as just kind of like a normal uh, Israeli army operation. Um, they referenced something uh, that they called the buffer zone. Um, let's start with that. Let's start with what the soldiers were doing in Al-Mawasi and, uh, uh, sorry, in Megazi, not Mawasi, in Megazi camp um, and 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 what, what happened. Hi guys. Yeah. So Monday, 4 PM, um, local time, um, social media started to, uh, come alive with Israeli, um, social media accounts talking about a disaster that happened in the Gaza Strip. Um, as it turned out, um, they had to admit to at least 21 deaths so far, um, in an operation where their forces were laying mines, um, to blow up, uh, basically to blow up neighborhood blocks um, rather than using airstrikes, which are expensive and, uh, you know, resource intensive with the, the cost of the fighter jets and the bombs that are given to them for basically free by the Americans. Um, the Israelis have been carrying out this operation on the ground where they literally uh, wire up the buildings um, and explode them. And so the Israeli uh, Defense Forces spokesperson said that this was one of those operations, 600 meters um, across the border from an Israeli uh, settlement in the south. And the nature of the attack was that the uh, Palestinian Qassam Brigade's fighter, it appears to be uh, an individual fighter, fired a uh, Yassin at this force that was laying these mines um, and blew up the house that they were in. And we've got a little bit of visuals here so people can understand what we're talking about, about these mines, because they've started to come out a little bit in the news over the last couple of weeks because of this uh, footage, in particular this footage. This is Isra University, which is in... Um, in, in Gaza City, um, and the Israelis uh, are showing this from their drone uh, camera footage. This is um, uh, what they do. This is what the mines do. They basically vaporize these buildings. Um, this is hundreds of mines um, to, to, to carry out an operation like that. And this is, again, a social media account showing um, these anti-tank mines and um, Israeli soldiers have been talking about it, about how they're basically donkeys um, carting these uh, anti-tank mines all over Gaza to blow um, to blow things up, to blow up entire city blocks. If we look at this next one, um, we can see what they're doing. And the operation in Al-Mughazi, they were trying to uh, blow up 10 um, 10 buildings. And we've seen if people on people have probably seen from the Israeli TikTok army that the that they've been the Israeli army has been releasing videos like this, where they're actually in the videos, I chose not to show them, I think people can go find them if they want. Um, but acting like idiots, um, you know, mocking what's happening, doing uh, ridiculous dances, um, and then pressing the trigger 
um, to detonate these entire blocks with these massive explosions. Um, we saw a TikTok video of them going of Israeli soldiers going through a Palestinian house and taking the clock off the wall and hanging a mine on it, taking family pictures and smashing them and hanging mines on them. So this has been something that the Israelis have really uh, dug deep into in their in their TikTok uh, war. Um, which is always juxtaposed really starkly with the resistance videos that we show and that the Qassam brigades and Palestinian resistance release all the time. Um, but yeah, so this operation was them laying these mines, being in the process of laying these mines um, and getting struck by the Palestinian resistance. And what these mines are, what they're doing, although Israel University was just an example of them destroying the seven universities in the Gaza Strip as part of a systematic campaign, which is basically all the military is doing, destroying. But the only systematic thing that's happening is the attack of hospitals and schools, which has been happening since the beginning. Um, and the Isra University uh, administration said that that actually was used as a base um, by the Israelis before it was blown up. Um, and so there's no um, pretext of this being um, anything other than destruction. But let's just look at some of these maps, because what Israel is attempting to do here um, is establish uh, what they call a buffer zone. Um, and essentially, this is a, an attempt, and, and Israel has done this just to say all along, when I lived in Gaza uh, in the Second Intifada, basically all of what Israel was doing was creating buffer zones, creating them around the settlements, creating them around the border areas. Um, and essentially, the goal is to, um, to, to push the population back away from the settlements that are in that envelope that we've been talking about, that we talked about on the show uh, many times, that that was the target of October 7th. It's also, of course, the villages where the Palestinians who live in Gaza, the refugees um, who came from those villages. Um, but this is an attempt that Israel has done. They do it in the north as well, of course, with Hezbollah trying to push them off the border. Um, but when you're talking about the Gaza Strip, um, you're talking about a place that's six kilometers wide. Um, and so this attempt to set up um, the buffer zone, um, you can see it in the next couple images. Let's do the before and after here tomorrow. You can see um, so this is the this this is the area in Gaza before this is uh, early in the war, um, photographed by um, the Israeli Defense Forces. And if you look in this next photo, you can see what they're what they're doing. They're just erasing um, population centers and moving them back from the border by carrying out these operations where they they spend time and resources. Um, to stay in position and wire up the buildings. These are not airstrikes that happen in the snap of a finger. These are days-long operations to rig up uh, explosives in these buildings. And, and really, when you just look at that before and after, um, I mean, it looks like an eraser was used. Um, and, and so the footage of Isra University um, was something that actually made the news in part because the Associated Press's Matt Lee questioned a uh, State Department spokesperson about this um, and asked about it. And, and the Israelis were kind of, the, I mean, the spokesperson was caught off guard by it, but um, the Israelis are caught off guard by it because they're, they're doing this for, for weeks uh, on end and don't get any coverage. And then all of a sudden, uh, the State Department is asking them questions about why they blew up this, uh, why they blew up the university. 
Um, and so they tell, of course, just patent lies about the university um, and say that they're looking into it, which is, of course, something we've talked about uh, on this show since uh, the show began, um, the way that Israel uh, d- carries out these kind of investigations when they're, they're as if they're surprised by what happened, although the videos that we showed are Israeli army drone footage. Um, so they're very well aware of what's happening. And in the in the Western media, this was framed yesterday as a surprise to Blinken that, that Israel was creating a buffer zone, even though Israel has said that that's what they're doing. And they've talked about this buffer zone as part of the third stage uh, of this war that's happening right now, where they are uh, taking some of the reserve forces and putting them back into their flagging economy. Um, and they're and they're establishing a buffer zone. They're bulldozing uh, a buffer zone, and they're doing that in part um, by by laying these mines. So now let, let's watch the Kassam operation. So Kassam describes the operation um, exactly the same way as the Israelis that they that their fighters. Um, this is footage now we're showing here of the of a, of a building. Uh, a Kassam fighter firing through the undergrowth, presumably using an attack tunnel, and then uh, moving around the corner to hit a tank, which we know the Israelis um, admitted to two of the uh, tank crew were killed in that operation. Um, and this, so this, uh, this is the, again, the Kassam brigades who were told uh, by the Israelis who need to say that they're destroyed um, before the Israelis can withdraw. Um, we're seeing Kassam respond within hours to this story uh, that was came, that came originally through social media, um, because of course the Israelis have a censor on all this information, and so there's not normal society reporting uh, on what's going on. It's all covered by a censor. But because of the 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 scale of this attack, 21 dead, at least that's how, that's the number that they've admitted that they they had to confront um, this attack. Uh, head on and, and explain it because their populations were saying what's going on because people are worried about their families who are the soldiers and whatnot. So the IDF, unlike other times when they can just uh, ignore it or lie about it, um, they had to confront uh, this operation and explain what happens. And then Kassam Brigades release within 12 hours a video of what um, of the operation that they say is connected to uh, to what happened in Al Maghazi. Um, again, this is carried out by the Central uh, Camps um, uh, Brigade of the Qassam Brigades, who we talked about on the last show, saluting their uh, their leaders, and we've talked about them uh, for a number of shows because this Middle Camps resistance has been fierce for this war for the Israelis, and so they're not actually this operation, as the Israelis were saying, was what they call it a defensive operation because they're setting up uh, a buffer zone, and the buffer zone is set up so that Israelis will come back and live in the south. And that's what the IDF spokesperson said. So they're carrying out this operation so that the uh, Gaza envelope, villages, uh, settlements, um, kibbutz, um, people will come home. Because as we know, there's hundreds of thousands of Israelis um, who are out of their houses, both in the north and in the south. And uh, a lot of Israel's exit plan for this war has to somehow include um, pictures of people going back to the south um, and and setting up again. Um, otherwise, the the war is clearly a, a failure for the Israelis, um, even by their own standards with their own people. 
Um, and so this operation, again, shows that Qassam has clear command and control. Um, presuming that this attack used an attack tunnel, um, it shows that the um, the resistance can reach the Israelis anywhere they are, which is, of course, the truth in Palestine anywhere. Anywhere the Israeli army is in all of Palestine, there's resistance in whatever form people can pull together in that spot. In this spot, we're seeing um, a, a trained force, a disciplined force, um, carrying out operations consistently. Again, everything that I'm going to show on this show today has been from the last seven days since you last saw us. We're not cherry picking these reports. These are, if, if anything, I have to cull through all the videos to find, uh, you know, to shorten them down to get them in because there's so many operations by this resistance force um, that doesn't show any signs of being uh, degraded in the way that Israel needs to say is happening. They count every, the Israelis hide their casualties and count every single male that's killed in the Gaza Strip as a Qassam Brigade's elite force fighter. Um, this kind of absurdity when really they're killing, uh, you know, mostly women and children and, and non-involved people um, to the tune of, of 100,000 casualties right now. And that those are just the, the wounded and, and, and killed already that we know. The operation in Khan Yunus is a devastating war crime happening around uh, shelters and hospitals. Um, it's a brutal operation. And then Israel's able to say in their media um, that this kind of uh, buffer zone uh, operation is a defensive operation when they have 100,000 forces inside the Gaza uh, Strip fighting, dropping bombs, uh, 35,000 plus airstrikes. Um, so you get a sense both from that attack, uh, the ability for the Qassam brigades to respond um, to the media discussions. As soon as the Israelis, um, they, they announced it the next morning, Tuesday morning, uh, local time. And as soon as they announced it, the Qassam brigades, like literally within two minutes of the IDF acknowledging it, the Qassam brigades released a field report with a visual of 21 uh, triangles. Um, so we're seeing them interact um, immediately. We're, we're not seeing some kind of delayed response that takes days. They're not piecing together some uh, footage to try to show that it was an operation. That, that, that operation looks like exactly what the Israelis described. Um, and so I don't think we need why to Why do stay. you think the Israelis, uh, John, sorry to interrupt you, why do you think the Israelis came out and said what happened? I mean... In the past, they have said, they've claimed that their soldiers were killed in friendly fire incidents, which in a certain sense is, I mean, that's very embarrassing if you're shooting or killing a lot of your own people, but it's less embarrassing in a way than the resistance killed all these people. What, you know, choose your poison. Why didn't they try yes. to present this as an engineering accident? I guess is like, it because they know be killed by an enemy fighter who's courageous and skilled than to say that you you blew up your your comrade because you were making a TikTok video. I mean, it's not clear to me what the Israelis are thinking by this. Um, I mean, one of the tenets uh, of war is to respect your opponent, and why not say that your um, that your your people are being killed by highly trained, skilled fighters who you know who are showing extraordinary courage. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me why they want to say that they blew each other up by being scared and opening fire on anybody, which we know the Israelis do because we know from their killing their own people that having a white flag, no shirt on, 
I mean, these these guys that were killed um, in Shujaia by the Israelis that were trying to come out um, from captivity and go to their own people to save them, um, they knew to not wear T-shirts so that the Israelis wouldn't shoot them for saying they were suicide bombers. Um, and so they came out of uh, with no shirts on, with their hands up, with white flags, writing SOS on the wall. And the Israelis are so scared um, that they still kill those people. So it, it's not clear to me why friendly fire is, is a good way. I think that uh, the answer to the question why this time that they admitted it is because the scale of the attack. Um, it came out, um, first of all, it lit up the entire skyline with clouds from the destruction. Um, but then there, the, the, the rescue effort was such that the Israelis used civilian ambulances um, and fire trucks. Um, and I think at some point, the lie, you can't lie um, on, on a large scale like this in a society, I mean, in any society, but in a society where people are actually participating. So people start talking, they, they get text messages from their family, and they're describing this disaster in the, in the South. Yeah. And so I think the Israelis had to come out and say what happened. Um, at first, it seemed like they were only going to admit to 10 deaths. Um, then they added, um, they're up to 21. And presumably, it's more than that, because it doesn't sound like there was, it sounds like the, the, the mines destroyed at least three buildings um, and dropped them on top of their fighters. So I think in, in, some, in some cases like this, they just can't lie. Um, they also when, didn't announce, John, if I'm correct, or correct me if I'm wrong, they didn't say any number of injuries. They only announced the number yeah. of deaths based on, you know, typical military rules of thumb. There are probably at least three injured, if not more, for every one killed, right? Unless you vaporize them with hundreds of anti-tank mines. Like, I, I don't know if there's, they couldn't get the rubble. I mean, the, the Israeli example gives you a sense of what the Palestinians are living through. They couldn't find the people in the rubble, um, even with all of their, um, you know, civil defense that's allowed to exist to dig people out of the rubble that's not allowed for Palestinians. Um, and so I think, yeah, there, it's possible that there's a, a lot more in that incident. And um, I think the way the way that Israel covers up their casualties in part is because they're able to sort of say to each family, like we're not saying that uh, Israel's lying to all these families and telling them that their kids are in Goa or something like that. Um, it's just that they're able to, um, you know, leak out the the deaths one by one. They ask people not to have big um uh, big funerals. They concentrate the funerals. We saw today um, the funeral um, become part of sort of like a national event for the Israelis and some of the uh, Israeli uh, senior officials that came to it were attacked by um, by the family members who are starting to say in Israel that people are dying um, for a war that they're not winning. And they're showing footage, the footage that comes home um, is showing their army being uh, committing war crimes and generally being cowardly and destructive. And I, I'm not sure that in the end, I mean, the Israelis clearly believe that these kind of descriptions um, are what their population wants. Like um, Gallant said the other, like in response to this, he said, the plumes of smoke from the tanks, artillery and air force planes will continue to cover the skies of the Gaza Strip until we achieve our goals. So it's like that they, they do believe that their population wants to see Gaza um, destroyed. But at some point, um, this fighting is going to be too much for them to bear. And I think we're starting to see those cracks uh, in Israeli society and these kind of um, large scale things. It's very hard to cover it up in Israel when 
um, people participated, you know, in the in the rescue operation of these soldiers um, for 12 hours. Um, and I, these I just, were reservists, right? And they wiped out a, 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 an entire uh, unit of reservists aged 22 to 40 years old. Because, because the reservists are the ones who, um, from from some of the things I've read, they generally tried to keep the reservists out of the front line, out of combat. You know, the reservists are doing the engineering, they're doing the logistics, they're doing the backup work, but they're not the first people sent to do the frontline fighting because these are civilians who are, you know, going for however many weekends a year they have to go for their reserve training. But also because the societal cost, you know, you haven't, if you're a career soldier, you've signed up for that. It's kind of the deal that you may be sent in somewhere where you're going to die. If you're a reservist, that's not necessarily what you're trying to do. So my point here is that the impact of these being reservists on the society is probably magnified uh, as compared to if they were, you know, uh, professional uh, frontline combat units. Yeah, I mean, they want it both ways because they brag about these reservists. Remember, we talked for a couple shows at the beginning about how they bragged about how they called up all these reservists and everybody's ready to fight in Israeli society. And then, um, yeah, the the economy has has tanked based on the fact that the the entire country is more or less shut down. The entire north, the entire south um, is not operating. And so part of Israel's war aims had to be to release some of the reservists to show that they were moving some of these people out. Um, but, um, but yeah, the, the operation, they called it a defensive operation because they're working, um, in the buffer zone. Um, but, um, let's, let's move to the videos because we'll show, I'm going to show you here, um, the way that the Palestinians are able to reach the buffer zone. There's no spot that you can put reservists that puts them somehow out of the line of fire. Um, because if we go through these, uh, videos here, let's, um, let's tee those up tomorrow. Um, this is uh, this is an attack tunnel. We're watching right now Palestinians climbing a ladder um, it, through a hole in the ground, um, coming out through into the buffer zone and targeting an Israeli uh, vehicle here. We see three fighters come out, a cameraman who's separate, and then we see uh, the Palestinian uh, guerrilla, the Qassam uh, Brigade's fighter, firing his Yassin um, from the buffer zone. Um, so the the tunnel network that the Israelis have now said is 50% larger than they believed it was. Um, uh, that the, the, So they now believe that there's more than 700 kilometers of these tunnels. These tunnels uh, involve, uh, uh, go all through this buffer zone. And, they, and we know that they go into Israel uh, as well, because we know that those attack tunnels were used in 2014 in the operation uh, to come out. And see here, we're seeing in this footage right here, that those are civilian ambulances um, taking part in these operations on the border. Um, and clearly we're seeing a helicopter here. This is just an aside, but it, it's pretty clear that the Palestinian resistance is not targeting um, the medevac helicopters, which is an interesting uh, development because these helicopters are have carried out more than 1400 medevacs that's what israel's admitted to um, in this operation so that that if we can loop it around again tomorrow so the the video we can see him climbing up a ladder through a hole in the ground because they're able to dig out from um dig the tunnel network 
to make an attack tunnel. They can make the 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 spot where they exit the tunnel to fight um, in any of these places. So the longer the Israelis are in this buffer zone, um, the more these kind of attacks um, can happen. And after this, tomorrow, if we could just show the still photo, because it, uh, this shot is just, uh, we see the Yassin and we talk about it and we often see it from helmet camera uh, footage, but there's, there's a good shot of what it looks like, the Gaza made uh, Yassin RPG uh, with their uh, 105 millimeter dual charged uh, explosive. So that's what we've been showing in the videos uh, for the last four months is uh, that weapon. And you can see this fighter coming out of an attack tunnel and setting up on, on a hillside. Um, the, the level of detail of this operation uh, and the courage of this operation, um, you, you couldn't more starkly juxtapose it with a TikTok army smashing some innocent family in Gaza's family photos and then hanging uh, and then hanging a mine on the wall and and doing some sort of dance. Um, it, 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 the, the, the combination between the lying about their casualties and what they choose to brag about um, in this war is just, it's really stark. And um, I think that mine operation uh, disaster for the Israelis and a complex, well-executed operation for the Palestinians, which includes, according to uh, the field report by the Qassam Brigades, included um, detonating a minefield as well. So it was a complex attack uh, involving um, uh, planning and, and detail um, that these Israeli forces are now, if, they're, if their goal is to set up in the buffer zone so that you're somehow pushing Palestinians back for one kilometer further from the settlements, uh, these videos show that that clearly uh, isn't going to happen. So that, that, uh, that one we just watched, that was three fighters exiting a tunnel. If we go to the next one tomorrow, number 10, um, again, you can see them climbing out of the ground with a fresh hole dug. So we're watching a, an attack tunnel that didn't exist several weeks ago when Israel's clearing this area. You can see the fighter climb out of the tunnel, and here we're watching him load up his RPG um, with a helmet cam. Um, and you can see by the way the topsoil is in this area that they dug that tunnel to exit the tunnel to fight. That wasn't a previously existing exit. So the Israelis believe that they're bulldozing, and that's why we've seen so much footage of these D9 bulldozers, the Caterpillar bulldozers, armored bulldozers, is because Israel believes that if they till the top layer of soil, um, that they'll expose these tunnels. And that um, has clearly not been the case because we've shown you for months now um, Palestinians exiting tunnels that clearly show that they've just been dug. Um, and so the capacity for these kind of attacks um, is, is extremely significant. And it's something that the longer the Israelis are in this buffer zone, the more likely these kind of attacks are. And that's got to be clear to anyone in the Israeli army that's laying mines today. Um, I think they'll be a little more circumspect about their TikTok videos today because I think everybody's going to be looking over their shoulder in the buffer zone um, to these kind of operations. And you're seeing here, you're watching footage here of a, of a Palestinian getting within, I mean, it's hard to tell with the zoom there, but a, a couple dozen meters at most away from an armored vehicle who that is a, a, a an engineering troop carrier that in, is looking for tunnels and setting up this buffer zone. Um, and you're seeing fighters 
um, that know the terrain. So this is east of Barej. Again, this is in the central camps. These are Palestinians fighting in their own neighborhoods. They know the tunnel network. They have it mapped above and below ground and are able to carry out operations where they use the tunnel network and dig out an exit um, for the attack tunnel. And this kind of uh, local guerrilla, you know, who knows their own terrain, um, these kind of attacks are... Um, they're impossible to stop for the Israelis. Um, and, and these are going to go on uh, as, as long as this war continues, which is why Israel is killing its own prisoners, um, because the exit strategy for Israel in this war isn't clear. It's not clear that they're willing to exchange all for all prisoners, which they could have done, by the way, on the first day. The, the, the attack on October 7th um, didn't require genocide to take place. Um, there could have been uh, solutions to this. And there there's, could be solutions in the North as well that don't involve sparking World War III um, by destroying Lebanon and bringing the American Marines and whatnot into a, a wider uh, war that Helena was talking about at the beginning. Um, there's uh, diplomatic and political ways out of this conflict that exchange prisoners of war for prisoners of war um, uh, uh, and end this, it, and end what, this what's carnage. What's particularly crazy about the Israeli approach, I mean, it's genocide, number one. I mean, that's that's the overarching reality. But the idea of a so-called buffer zone, I mean, they tried that. They tried that in Lebanon for 20 years. They had the so-called um, South Lebanon security zone, as they called it. And they were just bled and bled and bled. They were attacked all the time and Hezbollah drove them out. And they they left. They, they withdrew like thieves in the night in uh yeah, they left their May, computers May, plugged in and, and, and just ran down the hill I, back in. I went I went to South Lebanon in they withdrew May 25th of the year 2000. I was there, I think it was the end of June or beginning of July, but everything was still fresh. The people there had preserved everything the way it was, and they were showing us around. And we went up to uh, hilltop um, outposts that were either Israeli army outposts or outposts of the South Lebanon army, the South Lebanon version of the Palestinian Authority, the traitor uh, militia that uh, Israel set up and which also fled. Most of its members fled to Israel. And their clothes were there. Their boots were there. There were cans of food that were half eaten. I yeah, mean, they, they just ran away. They ran away. They ran away. So they tried that for 20 years in Lebanon. And what it generated was an even stronger Hezbollah. Something that Helena said earlier, Helena Coburn, that really struck me. I remember, I was in college at the time, that it was a big deal at the time. It was a big news story when Israel arrested these hundreds of members of Hamas and other uh, resistance groups and political leaders from Gaza, I think from the West Bank too. In, in, in other words, hundreds of people had just dumped them over the border in Lebanon, which was completely illegal. It was a war crime. Lebanon refused to take them because they said, we are not going to be the dumping ground where Israel can expel Palestinians at will. So these guys were stuck 
in this border zone, and it was in winter, hundreds of them for, I, I can't remember how long it was, whether it was weeks or months or whatever, but I'd never thought of that until Helena mentioned it as eventually it became a school for yeah. these hundreds of leaders to learn resistance tactics from Hezbollah. So that was Israel supposed to be supposedly collectively punishing and dismantling Hamas. And what they ended up doing was strengthening its relationships with Hezbollah and turning it into an even more effective force. So they never learn. They never uh, say, well, yeah, we tried that. It was a huge mistake. Didn't work out for us. It's always, let's do again and again and again the same thing we've be do been doing. But let's add more baby murder. Let's add more slaughter of, uh, of, of kids. Let's add more humiliation and torture and murder of elders. Let's see if that works. Let's add more atrocities and see if we get better results. Yeah, and these buffer zones are also shoot-to-kill zones, right? Like uh, when I reported from Gaza in the Second Intifada, the kids, you had to rely on the kids to tell you exactly where the buffer zone line was um, because the Israelis, well, we saw it on the Great March of Return as well, um, that the Israelis fire into these buffer zones, their free fire zones and shoot-to-kill zones where they, the kids, it's the kids walking to school. In Rafa, when I lived in Rafa, they were killing kids walking to school. Um the the buffer zones are an extremely violent area for the indigenous population. The idea that it's some kind of defensive zone or it's like some kind of cordon sanitaire or whatever, uh, it's just not the truth. And Marja Zahur is the the hill that they uh, sent the Hamas uh, leadership to uh, in Lebanon, and yeah, it became a university uh, for them to learn tactics which uh, Hezbollah had learned previously from the Palestinians. It's been a constant back and forth throughout the, the course of these struggles. So um, that's an important moment in the history of the armed struggle. Uh, there's no question about that. So uh, I'm glad that she brought that up. That's an important point. Let's, let's, let's do number 11 here, uh, Tamara. This is, uh, this is in Jabalia. Again, an attack tunnel bringing multiple fighters out um, through the morning fog here uh, that you can see in Gaza um, and reaching Israeli armored vehicles. And so there's no buffer zone that's a defensive buffer zone. That's just not, it's just not true. It's not possible with the tunnel network. It's not possible that the fighters are going to relate to, to not fight uh, in this zone. So it's even, an, it's an impossible task that the Israelis uh, are, are setting up here. But the task involves erasing thousands of Palestinian uh, homes. Uh, in, in, and as we know from Rifat, uh, many generations live in these homes. Um, and so when one home uh, can be home to 40 people, 50 people, and they're destroying hundreds of them uh, in each day um, as part of a systematic policy. So I just wanted to show this one because it's uh, through the morning fog uh, that is a, a benefit to the resistance fighters as well. And in the winter in Gaza, uh, the morning fog. Uh, is is a thing so you can see them again moving through their own their own territory these are their own areas in jabalia these are where these fighters live the fighters fight in their in their own communities um defending their own communities and so this is jabalia in the far north uh, of gaza we watched the middle camps uh area of gaza and we know that there's extremely fierce fighting there, there are those adidas pants again sorry john yeah, I, I don't know if that that's probably the best endorsement deal Adidas didn't want. 
<laughs> they should want it. They, uh, yeah, no, the resistance fighters are uh, clearly using comfortable attire uh, to carry out these these operations um, and are very successful in it. So let's let's switch to uh, number twelve here tomorrow. We're gonna go uh, show here. This is a. Uh, Saraya Al Quds, uh, Islamic Jihad's armed wing. We're looking at a photo, uh, at a video footage of them seeing Israeli soldiers, uh, dismounted Israeli soldiers in a building. And now we're seeing them, their fighters, knocking a loophole, a sniper loophole, out of the, the wall of this destroyed house. Um, in contrast to the Israelis who stand in the windows and put curtains up when they're in there, we're seeing a fighter, a sniper, a clearly skilled sniper, uh, set back from the wall, which is just basic uh, military uh, procedure, um, not visible, and dropping Israeli soldiers who are outside of a building with sniper fire, which is also... Uh, a key operational um, tactic that we will see in the buffer zone uh, because there is no possibility of creating a defensive zone where Israeli soldiers are when Palestinians have the capabilities that they have now, which they didn't have 20 years ago. And when they were expelled to Marja Zahur in 1994, they didn't have uh, these uh, resources that they have built with their own hands in the Gaza Strip for themselves. So this is a sniper attack dropping a soldier. Let's go to the next one tomorrow because there's another one that we see. Um, again, uh, this is a Saraya Al-Quds unit using a 50 cal sniper rifle. We're seeing footage right now of them inside a destroyed building that has no hole in the wall. And we're seeing right now uh, one of their fighters um, poking a hole in the wall using a hammer very carefully to make the hole as small as possible. Um, and then the fighters um, looks looks a bit like the same sniper. These are both uh, Gaza City shots um, that are taking place. Again, dismounted soldiers moving what they believe is a safe area uh, and a fighter in a hoodie and a, and a toque uh, popping a loophole out and, and targeting uh, these Israeli soldiers, which is something that will happen constantly uh, in that. I just wanted to throw in a couple of Sarayal Kuds there. Um, again, we, we're showing, uh, actually, that this one's from Barej, actually. This is the Central Camps, again. So shout out to the Central Camps resistance that has been fierce uh, uh, for, since this third phase uh, when Israel has moved into the center and the south. Um, the resistance by these groups have been, uh, by by all resistance factions, we we tend to show these videos by Qassam and Sarai al-Quds, um, in part because they have the... Um, um, they have the film crew, they have the uh, expertise, uh, they have the information operations embedded into their units. But uh, there's 10 armed groups in the Gaza Strip that are carrying out operations uh, uh, daily. So Sarayal Quds is the Islamic yeah. Jihad, the armed wing of Islamic Jihad. And the Qassam Brigades are the uh, armed wing of the uh, Hamas movement. I, I, something that always strikes me, John, this is a may sound a little bit weird, but sometimes when I'm driving and I see all the raccoons and sometimes deer killed on the roads and it makes me very, very sad. And I say, well, you know, animals have such incredible ways of communication and instinct but they don't have language the same way we do. Cause I just wish like the deer could tell the other deer stay away from the roads or, you know, if you see headlights, don't 
across the road. They don't have that ability to do that. So they can never, I don't know, learn over time. Uh, but like, presumably Israeli soldiers do have that ability. And so my, no, my question is, like, aren't they telling each other, stay away from the windows, they can't don't walk out? I mean, yeah. like they love windows. Are they like raccoons? I mean, what what is going on? I mean, raccoons are actually lovable creatures. I know that's a touchy topic in Toronto, but um, I'm pro raccoon though. Yeah, raccoon. I know. They're but like I mean, animal groups. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm being a little lighthearted about it, but the serious question is: Is there no? You know, we've you've been telling us, you've been showing us how. Hamas learns from its experience, how Hezbollah learns from its experience, even within the context of this battle. So, yes, they're learning over decades, but they're also learning over days and weeks in the context of this genocidal war. Why aren't the Israelis learning? I don't have an answer to that. I think we, we'll, we'll have to ask them after. I, I, I mean, there, there was footage shown the other day of a, of a Sarayal Quds force coming into the house that the Israelis are in and right. fighting inside the house. We have showed that video. I don't think YouTube would leave that uh, video up, but they're fighting inside the house. And one of the things that you see from the from the Israeli soldier on his helmet cam is that he goes right to the window. He's it's almost like he's looking for an extra yeah. window to go to. It's not clear why why they're not learning these lessons. Um, uh, maybe they are learning the lessons, and we're just seeing the ones who aren't. Um, but no, it's not clear. What we're seeing is a is a fighting force that is not able to carry out. Um, the orders of of their generals that are saying that they're going to fight in Gaza for a year. Um, not, nothing shows that the Israelis are, are prepared for that in, as a, on a societal level or on a military level um, to carry out uh, what, what they claim uh, that they're going to do, which is why I think we're starting to see like this week we saw Israeli and American intelligence reports leaked kind of to the Washington Post and to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal about the number of, of uh, Qassam fighters uh, that the Israelis have killed um, looking for an exit. And they, they use this term combat ineffective that we talked about. Uh, where 30, if 30% 30 of your force has been killed or wounded um, and can't come back to fight, that that unit is considered combat ineffective, which is obviously uh, not true for a Palestinian guerrilla force that's able to re, uh, re appoint leaders uh, and to move fighters in a fighting force that um, that is more than 40,000. And the Israelis have, have kind of ratcheted strangely in an, in an effort to exit this war, ratcheted down the number of fighters that they believe that the Qassam brigades have um, down to 25,000 so that they can get these numbers to, to line up. Because in the Western media, these counting numbers are something that they rely on. Body count. Uh, I mean, talk, John, talk about count. the history of body counts in the context of the Vietnam War and what that stood for, how, how that symbolized the American failure. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the Americans used to shoot the the the, the wildlife and count the wildlife uh, as their numbers uh, in that attack while they were getting smoked by the uh, Vietnamese resistance. Um, and so these numbers, like Israel trying to say that they've killed nine thousand Qassam fighters, it's just it's there's no evidence whatsoever of that. If that number is true, there's no men in all of Gaza who are not in 
the Kassam brigades because that's the number of men that have been killed. But just to say, like, I follow the Israeli uh, military, uh, you know, uh, very closely throughout this, and I watch every single one of their videos. And if, if I told you that there wasn't even 50 corpses in their videos, I don't want to put a number out, but uh, the number is in the dozens. Uh, and we don't even know that they're fighters that they put out in their videos. Their videos are essentially videos of, of snuff films from the air um, where they're saying that that person uh, is a fighter. And even still, even if you took all of their videos and all of the people that they kill in all of their videos, there's nothing like thousands. Uh, it's just, it's, it's lies. And partially the military censor allows for these lies, but I mean, partially the thing that you described in your report, Ali, is it's all part of that. The, the, the media is intertwined with these fighting forces. Um, and it's like they can't, you know, she, Elizabeth Dwoskin has hundreds of thousands of words of electronic intifada, including tens of thousands from the Gaza Strip itself, if she wanted to report on what was going on. Um, but there's no, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any interest in that. There's nothing like um, the Isra the New York Times appears to be the same as the Israeli censor. If you type Hannibal into the New York Times search engine, you're not going to get anything about uh, you know the the dozens of stories that uh, that have appeared in the Israeli press. It's almost the Israelis uh, with their censor are almost more uh, telling us more than the uh, than the Western media. So let's just let's just look at the last few of these videos here. Um, this number 14 tomorrow, this is, um, uh, again, troops uh, walking around outside a building that they presumably feel they have control of. Um, and then we see fighters, Qassam uh, uh, fighters, um, the armed wing of Hamas um, uh, fighters uh, using a thermobaric warhead built in the Gaza Strip. Uh, on lathes uh, underground, um, as all of these weapons that we're seeing uh, uh, for this throughout this war, the weapons that we're seeing are built by Palestinians. And part of the reason why they're able to still fight four months on um, is because the preparation that their own arms industry created. And the Israelis talk about that too, saying, well, we didn't expect it to be as vital that their arms industry wasn't this vital. Um, they didn't expect that the that there was 50% more tunnels than the largest tunnel estimate, they say. Like Kogat said that the, the, the tunnels are an astonishing feat. Um, you know, these are Palestinians defending themselves against genocide with their own hands, with things built in their own communities, um, and fighting for communities that are now uh, in Jabalia in this case, although there's still, as we know, a lot of people in the north. Um, the vast, vast majority of people have been driven from their homes and are living in very dangerous circumstances in the south, in places where Israel told them to go, and they're now under attack. Um, which is also something you can read about on the electronic intifada, but uh, it's not clear that you're going to read about that in the Washington Post. Um, let, let's just roll through the last, um, uh, let's do 16 tomorrow, because this is a, a video by the Kassam Brigades um, from Gaza City. And we can see, again, soldiers in a window. Um, but in this video that we're going to watch, we're going to see, we're seeing Palestinians who are in the building literally across the street. Uh, literally the next building over, um, targeting with Palestinian-made warheads that are various 
uh, warheads. Here they're targeting uh, an armored vehicle um, using a different warhead than they target this, uh, the soldiers on foot. Um, here they are using an RPG against a bulldozer. Um, here's dismounted soldiers uh, walking, and this is a fragmentation warhead that's used um, that's used against uh, personnel. So we're seeing the fighters make choices. Uh, uh, there's no, nothing indicating shortages. Um, there's nothing indicating uh, any kind of degrading of these resistance operations. If anything, the fighters now know better what weapons to use in what circumstance and what's more effective. There's another soldier in a window that we're watching. And we're also watching in Gaza City uh, here, a soldier be hit on the waterfront, which Israel said that it took control of in November. Um, and now we're seeing soldiers in a window uh, being hit in along the waterfront. Um, and so th these videos all show that the buffer zone, it's not a thing. The Israelis aren't going to create a, a buffer zone where their soldiers are somehow not going to be attacked. Um, the only way out of this situation for Israel is to negotiate a prisoner exchange um, and to negotiate with, with Hezbollah in the north to get uh, some kind of agreement for liberated territory, the Sheba farms, um, to get that territory back um, and to, to have some kind of a diplomatic um exit to this, which I think we're starting to see from the Americans and the French, um, that the Israelis need, which they needed in 2006 as well. We remember in 2006, they didn't want a ceasefire in 2006. Um, and then they carried out the ground operation, got smoked, and then wanted a ceasefire. And it's um, important so we'll to note now, John, uh, on this, this is very important because this also tells us something about you know, we can look at it from the perspective of the videos which shows what's happening on the battlefield, but the diplomatic uh, developments also tell us what's happening on the battlefield. And what I mean by that is that Israel is desperate for a ceasefire, but without calling it a ceasefire, because they have painted themselves into this corner where they're saying they, they have all these big goals, we're going to destroy Hamas, obliterate Hamas, Gaza is going to be changed for generations. We're going to free the hostages, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they know because they said it in the beginning, stupidly, they said it, and Blinken said it, that a ceasefire means Hamas won. So now they can't agree to a ceasefire that they desperately want because they by their own definition, that's defeat for them. Their publicly stated definition. That's defeat for them. So what are they doing now? They keep sending these proposals through the mediators, uh, whether it's Qatar or Egypt. And the latest one is, oh, we'll give you a two-month ceasefire in exchange for freeing the uh, prisoners of war. And we'll allow the senior leaders of Hamas to leave the Gaza Strip and you know, all sorts of other things. No um, release of Palestinian prisoners from Israeli jails, though. That was also part of their... Well, proposal. you know, the, the point is, right. yeah, I mean, it's all these different things. Yeah. And Hamas is saying, no, we will not accept that. Not for a month, not for two months, not for six months. It has to be a permanent ceasefire. Yeah. That's our condition. So the point I'm making is they feel that they can hold that line. So their assessment of what's happening on the battlefield, clearly their assessment of what uh, 
resources they have is that they can hold that line. They stated that very clearly a couple of weeks ago. Uh, 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 Abu Ubaidah, the spokesperson for the for the military wing of Has- of, of Hamas, the Al Qassam Brigades, Abu Ubaidah, as he's known. That's the only way we know him. For for you know, he's the man who appears with his face covered in the kafiyah, and he's sort of this legendary figure. He made that very clear. We will not accept anything less than a permanent ceasefire. Osama Hamdan, another uh, uh, senior Hamas leader in uh, Beirut, who gives these uh, daily press conferences, has been crystal clear about that. So the Israelis are the ones who constantly keep increasing their offer. First, they were saying a two-week ceasefire and, and free the prisoners. Now we're up to two months. And this is coming from the Israeli side. Yeah, they, yeah, there's the Israelis don't have the ability to continue this war indefinitely, and the Palestinians are not going to surrender. This idea that that Sinwar is surrounded by captives is ridiculous. The idea that they're going to have any kind of negotiations happening um, that involve—I mean, I don't want to predict, but I, I think one of the things that I wouldn't uh, that I would be confident predicting is that Yahya Sinwar is not going to take exile uh, as no, part of this no deal. Way. So um, these kind of talks uh, are ridiculous, and what you see is is Israel looking for a way out of a war that they're losing. And we've told you that for four months that they're going to lose this war and that they're fighting against uh, Palestinians who have dedicated their entire life to this liberation struggle. And if it, if they didn't ha- and they weren't dedicating their life to it before, they definitely are now. Um, and this is no question that this is a national liberation struggle that nobody's going to surrender. Uh, it, it, no Palestinians wanting that. We're not even we're not seeing anything like that. We're seeing. Uh, footage every single day of devastation of attacking civilians and those civilians supporting um, the resistance. You're not going to genocide your way uh, out of this national liberation struggle. And just one more thing, if I could say on this, uh, that uh, I'll just drop this uh, Tamara in the uh, private chat here. And if you could throw it up on the screen, Uh, this is a piece I did uh, uh, this week, earlier this week, which is about the uh, interviews or leaks that unnamed Israeli generals, we're not talking about like low-level soldiers, we're talking about generals, gave to the New York Times to basically say, we're losing the war on the ground and we need a way out and we need a diplomatic way out. Basically, there's, there's an internal war in Israel, an internal battle among the political and civilian leadership between the political leadership that wants to continue the war forever because their personal fate is tied to it and the cost of admitting defeat is so high, and the military, which has to deal with the fact that they are losing so many men, killed, injured, so much equipment, the collapse in their morale, the collapse in their fighting ability, and they're going to the New York Times and I, I read that, and that's what I say in the article. They're basically saying to the United States, hey, help us stop this war. So far, the Biden administration is all in, and they are not doing anything to stop the war. But even the Israeli generals are begging the United States, save us from ourselves. And that is just a sign of how badly uh, they're doing. 
Of course, the thing we can't forget is that any time they lose uh, on the battlefield against these brave fighters, these brave, well-trained fighters, they take it out on the civilians. And every day, despite that disgusting headline that people saw, the New York Times claimed uh, that the death rate in Gaza had fallen as if we were talking about an epidemic or something and not a genocide, but it hasn't fallen. And the number of people they're killing is still 150, 200 people a day, far above the uh, levels of any other conflict this century, according to the numbers that were published by Oxfam a couple of weeks ago. So when, whenever they lose against soldiers, they take it out on babies. Yeah. Well, uh, as always, John, thank you for that meticulous uh, report. And um, yeah, that's, uh, I know we'll have a lot more next live stream, as always. Uh, Ali, thank you so much. Uh, Asa, of course, um, let's, uh, before, before we end, let's go to some of the comments. I know that we had quite a few. Um, what are, what are some of the highlights? Yeah. Um, lots of comments today. Um, very long stream. So we had a lot, um, we had comments from all over the world as usual. Um, people joining us. And we, lo from... we love Tunisia. It's <laughs> yeah. lovely to see people watching in, in Tunis. Great. Yeah. And, and from uh, Yemen. Oh, my goodness. Yemen. viewer from Yemen as well. Um, all over the world. It, we've got a very global uh, audience, which is uh, very nice. Um, we have a viewer here who became a monthly supporter. So thank you very much for that. Um, and people, of course, sending support and condolences to Ahmed Masoud, who, um, whose brother was killed by Israel, as we heard earlier in the program. Um, <clears throat> people appreciated our guest earlier in the show, Helena Coban, and um, uh, people, as always, remembering Rifat our dear friend Rifat, of course. Um, and um, yeah, we did, we, we got loads of comments. I mean, I, I can't possibly read them all. Um, you know, we've got a very loyal audience and we're very appreciative to you all. And thank you very much for joining us again today. Thank you. And um we have, you know, of course, we're all uh, anticipating a judgment by the International Court of Justice in The Hague uh, over South Africa's case against Israel. Um, and uh, that could come in the next uh, few days. And uh, so stay tuned because we might be able to do an emergency live stream broadcast um, with uh, international legal experts on what uh, the ruling means either way. Uh, and, and especially, you know, uh, if the ICJ rules that South Africa's case is valid and that Israel is indeed committing genocide, uh, what does it mean in terms of its application um, and, and really holding Israel materially 
accountable and responsible for its actions. Um, so we'll get into that. So please stay tuned. And as well, um, I believe on Friday here in California, uh, the federal court is going to hear the case against the Biden administration brought by Palestinian Americans um, and they're being represented uh, by the Center for Constitutional Rights and uh, the ADC uh, and other uh, civil rights organizations. So um, we'll be watching that as well. Uh, plenty more to stay tuned for, of course, here on this live stream, but also most importantly on our website, our publication, the Electronic Intifada, electronicintifada.net. Um, we have just, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, a, a plethora of features and analyses and on-the-ground reports from our, our brave, courageous contributors in the Gaza Strip, as well as all over the world. Um, so please uh, make a point to go to EI and sign up for our email list. Like and subscribe uh, to this YouTube channel. Um, anything else I'm forgetting, Ali? <laughs> Just keep reading, sharing, uh, shout out to all our our wonderful colleagues who uh, you don't see on the live stream, but who are working extremely hard, Omar and David and, and Leah and Michael and Maureen and uh, Tamara, of course, who is here with us, but behind the screen, uh, did I forget anyone? It's been a long night, so I, I hope I haven't. I think that's I all. Have, but we are, we are very, very uh, grateful to work with wonderful people and we are very conscious uh, of our friends and colleagues in Gaza every day. It's been very distressing over the past week or so that we have had a great deal of difficulty staying in touch with yeah. some of them, but we try to on a daily basis. And, um, you know, that's something that's, that stays at the top of our hearts and minds. And so please keep them in your hearts and minds. Please share their writing. Uh, many of them are Rifat students, uh, uh, and those who are not Rifat students are also fulfilling his mission of telling Palestine stories. And they've done their part. Our part is to read them, to share them, and to let the world know. And don't stop talking about Gaza. That's the one thing our friends in Gaza always tell us. Don't stop talking about us. Don't stop going out. Don't stop uh, demonstrating, rallying, calling your representatives. Uh, keep it up. They're counting on us. Thank you so much, Ali. Uh, I'm Nora on behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, Asa, John, Tamara, behind the scenes, uh, and all of our staff, as Ali mentioned. Um, thank you again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much.